Welcome back to Wednesday night Bible study. It's good to see you all. Tonight I want to just give a little brief, 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 brief overview of kind of where we've been and what the plan is for the upcoming year. So, and after I do that, briefly, we'll dismiss all the kiddos to go to your classes. I'm always thankful when we get to dive back into our Wednesday night studies. For about, um, I guess, a few years now, a few being like seven or eight, we've been studying through our Old Testament, and we've worked through all of Genesis, and we've gotten through three-fourths of the way of Exodus. The plan right now is to finish Exodus in December, and then in January, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. In January, we'll go right into Leviticus, but I don't want to spend too much time in Leviticus. If you've ever read it, you understand why. Um, But what we're going to do is move at a pace where we spend two to three weeks on each book of the Bible. And we're going to do more of an overview study that's still expositional in nature. So the big picture goal is that by January, our entire body, kids, adults, and our students who are now meeting in the treehouse, so they're on campus with us, which is a cool deal this, this semester, We will all be uh, jumping into the same portion of Scripture by the end of this semester and moving at a quicker pace, um, utilizing Wednesday nights to work through large portions of Scripture in such a manner that we'll work through the entire Bible as a church every four to five years on Wednesday nights. So, the goals are big. It'll take a few years to get there, but uh, but I think it's good, so I think it's exciting. So, uh, let me pray, and then we'll let the kiddos be dismissed. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you for our time. We thank you for the sweet privilege it is to open our Bibles and to not have to whisper and to be able to uh, see the revealed um, purposes of a perfect, sovereign, loving, compassionate, mighty, just God. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time tonight as we study. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Where are we in Exodus? Um, Remember that Exodus is the story of a people, and we can say that our story as Christians, is the story of a people. And what that means is that when we study these books that were written many years ago, it's not just a history lesson and it's not just some far distant, disconnected thing that happened, but it's about our story because we're Christians. And our God is the same God that is the God of Israel that we see in Genesis and Exodus. So what we're doing is climbing back into our story, the story of a people, We're three-fourths of the way through Exodus, and I want to see what that means. So my question is, turn to Exodus. uh, We're going to be in Exodus 31 tonight. And as we look at the text, who was here last semester before the summer as we studied through Exodus? Raise your hand. Sweet. That's most of you. Um, So where is Israel right now? Say that again? The wilderness, okay? And why are they in the wilderness? Peel back the cobwebs. It's been a long summer. It's good. You've got to climb back in slowly. Where? Out of slavery. From where? Why were they in slavery and where were they in slavery? Egypt, okay. Because they became too numerous. And why did that happen? Well, I mean, we know what happened. (laughs) But why did it happen? Say that again. I did, and I corrected it before any of you smarties could. Um, So, was there any um, 
What was the blessing on Israel from God? You will be what? Numerous as what? The sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. That's exactly right. And so that blessing came true, and within just a few generations, the Israelites were um, becoming so numerous that the Egyptians were deeply concerned that um, they would lose their power to them. Now, what were the Israelites doing in Egypt in the first place? How did that happen? Joseph. What happened with Joseph? Thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. Now, what wicked people would do that to, some, to a man? His family. Yes, his brothers. That's exactly right. And so, He's thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. He makes his way to Egypt. How does the rest of Israel get there? He invites them. That's odd. How, they, they sold him into slavery, and he invited them to Egypt. Why did that happen? There was a famine, exactly. And what, what did the famine cause that would bring a family back together? What was the need Food, yes. And so they went to Egypt. So the Israelites went to Egypt to look for food, and who did they run into? Joseph. Did they know it was Joseph? No. So through a number of events, we see God's grace extended through Joseph to a people known as Israel while he's in Egypt. Now, why did he have the power to be able to help his family at all? Just because he was in Egypt, what, what was his position? Where was he working? Second in command. Okay. Is Egypt really, really powerful at this point? Okay. Um, how was um, a man who is a non-Egyptian, particularly an Israelite, how did he make his way up to such a high level of authority where he was so trusted by the main leader of Egypt? How did that happen? Now, I can't accept that answer. I mean, it's true, but God's plan. That's like Jesus. Well, of course, the answer is Jesus, but let's get specific. Yes. Say that again. Interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And through a number of things, the interpretation of the dream, remember the baker and the candlestick maker, the cake maker, all that weird story. Um, he, he became very trusted by the leadership of Egypt, and he worked his way up, and he was now in a place of authority in Egypt. So what happened? Okay, he's got a place of authority. He brings his people over. What was that land that he put his people in? The land of what? Goshen. Very good. Man, I'm feeling good about y'all digging back in. This is good. So the land of Goshen. And they're, they're protected in Goshen, right? The Israelites are there. Now, why didn't the Egyptians want to move to Goshen? Because the Israelites were what? Shepherds, which was what? And... Uh, abomination. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, Israel is in Goshen, in Egypt. They're protected there. The Egyptians don't want to go any go there anyway because they're shepherds, and that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, how could they be, go from being respected to being enslaved? At some point, they became slaves. How did that happen? Yeah, there was a new Pharaoh, and he did not remember Joseph, is what it says. And so what did they do to, as, you know, they're growing in number, they're growing in number, they're growing in number. 
what did, what, what did this new Pharaoh do to try to control them? What? Kill the firstborn. Before that, they made them make what? Bricks. And then they did it without straw, which you ever tried to make bricks without straw? It's terribly hard. And so uh, bricks without straw, hard labor, big burden. Um, then they're going to kill the firstborn. And who was the little firstborn in the little baby ark wrapped in pitch? Moses, that's right. And what does his name mean? Yes, drawn out. I was worried. It was like quiet there. It was like, I don't know. Moses literally means drawn out, which is just fantastic. I mean, the people of Israel, drawn out. God's plan of salvation, drawn out. So he's drawn out over time. Moses um, grows up, uh, kills a guy. God uses murderer Moses in an amazing way to put him over his, the leadership of Israel. And how do they get out of Egypt? How many plagues were there? Ten. Okay. And did Israel die during the plagues? No. What was the final plague? Death of the firstborn. Okay. How did Israel end up leaving Egypt? Say so what? Yeah, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Many times wouldn't let him go, wouldn't let him go. Um, and then finally said, you cannot stay. And then they leave. And then they are pursued. And then they come to a sea known as what sea? The Red Sea. And what happened at the Red Sea? It parted. Yes. That's part of the story. And then, yeah, yeah. Israel got through the parted Red Sea, and then God brought the waters back together. For real, this happened. Not a fairy tale. And um, how many Egyptians made it? Zero. Okay. Okay. So then they come into the, they, they're away from the Egyptians and the Lord brings them to the base of Mount, what? Sinai. That's where we are. Congratulations. Y'all very quickly just covered a few hundred years of Israel's history. That was awesome. Way to go. Um, so they're at the base of Mount Sinai and the Lord has called Moses up essentially to give him what? they're supposed to do, who they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to live. And so Moses has ascended to the top of Mount Sinai, and what has the Lord been covering with him? What are some of the details that the Lord has shared with him about who his people are supposed to be and what they're supposed to do? All right. God shared some stuff with Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. Ten Commandments, that's, that's a big one. Let's not forget that. The Ten Commandments, okay. And details about what? The tabernacle. Okay, what's the tabernacle? Where God will dwell with his people. And what is the tabernacle? As we studied through, the, we looked at laws, we looked at covenant, looked at the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lampstand, the tabernacle itself, the poles, the, the fabric on the outside, we looked at the bronze altar, the court of the tabernacle, the oil for the lampstand, the lampstand itself, the priest's garments, the consecration of the priests, the bronze basin, the altar of incense, the census tax, the anointing oil and incense. What does every single piece of that have to do with? Give your Sunday school answer, please. 
Jesus. Yes. As we looked at all of those details, we saw the redemption of Jesus. We saw how we are washed in the blood of Jesus, how the sacrifice of Christ gives us life. We saw redemption. We see that in Christ we can be seated, brought near to God. There's reconciliation there. And what we learned last semester as we studied through all these tabernacle details is that it's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Jesus was not an afterthought. Jesus was not God's way of fixing with plan two what didn't go wrong and what didn't go right in plan one. What, Jesus has always been the plan. And the tabernacle has taught us so much about Jesus. So now, Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai. God has, has appeared how? In a cloud. And he has spoken to Moses. And there is much to do for Israel. Now, at this point in our story, we have a very detailed plan from God to Moses about a very Christ-centric tabernacle that will be dwelling, be the dwelling place of God with his people. God has made his expectations and plans clear to his people. So the question remains is, who's going to do this work? What has Israel been doing for the last few generations? Making bricks. Okay. What are some of the details? Just throw out a few of what's going to be required of what's to be made for the tabernacle, God's dwelling place with his people. Say that again. Garments. Altars. Yes, gold inlaid and overlaid, and that's pretty specific detail. And this is generations of brick makers. I mean, does anyone know any uh, a mason? Does anyone know any masons? Okay. Uh, not, not a mason, like a mason mason, but like someone who does concrete work. Okay. Imagine them being responsible for like intricate priestly garments to be sewn in a manner with stone, stones inlaid just so, and gold overlaid on these poles. And they, I mean, that's pretty meticulous work. That takes some serious artistic ability. So the question, who will do this great work? Israel spent the last few decades doing slave labor. Artistry and specialized training are not exactly everyday occurrences for Israel. In short, God has included details about hammering out gold in the shape of winged cherubim and an ark of specific measurements and rings of gold specifically spaced and acacia poles meticulously overlaid with pure gold that are not to leave the, the rings of gold, curtains and priestly garments sewn from costly yarns and inlaid with precious jewels. Yet Israel at this point is made up of generations who have spent their time making bricks. Who will do the great work? That's where we're at in Exodus 31. So let's dive in and look at the text. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for every setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Well, looky there. Where did that guy come from? Well, it, I mean, it's heritage is a bunch of slaves. Have you ever been called to something or you know you're called to something? You know something needs to be done? Have you ever been at that point where you know it's absolutely necessary and you're going, who the heck's going to do that? 
Has anybody ever been in that situation? As a church leader, I see it a lot. I'm like, okay, God, I read that. That's what we need to do. Who's going to do that? And it is so comforting to me to know that our sovereign God is always doing far more than we know. What are we seeing here? To me, it is mind-blowing to consider the secret influences of a sovereign God. What is he orchestrating? Who is he raising up? He is always doing more than we can see, and his ways are infinitely higher than ours. Would you all agree with that? Have we seen that in this body? Always doing more than we know. His ways are higher than ours. He'll facilitate things and move things together and put things together and put people in place where I'm like, really, that never could have happened if that person hadn't moved to this town at that time and made that phone call to that other person that they didn't know a week ago. And look at what happened. A baby has a home. Someone has, has experienced healing. Provision has been made for families. I mean, there's so many different details that the Lord tends to. His ways are infinitely higher than ours, and He knows all of our deepest needs before we voice them. That should comfort you and encourage you in your prayers. When you go to pray to God, you're not praying to a God who knows nothing. Sometimes we act like it. Okay, God, it's been a bad week. I've got this, this, and this going on, and I could really use some help in this, this, and this. Our appeals to God should be in a manner of respect and trust, knowing that He is compassionate. His love is lacking in nothing, and He knows your deepest needs before you voice them. Yet He loves you so much that He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, go ahead and let your request be made known. He doesn't want us to make our requests known because He doesn't know them. He does it because he's a loving and a compassionate God who cares about where we are, and he wants us to know he listens, but more importantly, he knows. He's sovereign, he's loving, he's encouraging, and he's compassionate. So here we're introduced to Bezalel first, and Aholiab, which we're going to get to in a second. Okay, before tonight, raise your hand if you've ever heard those two names before. Okay, a couple of y'all. Does anyone think regularly about Bezalel and Aholiab? Okay. Are there any artists in the room? Yes, there are. I know there are. Do you all reflect on the, the previous work of Bezalel and Aholiab? Do we go to museums and see the fantastic craftsmanship of Bezalel and Aholiab? Do we have books written about the, um, the architecture of Bezalel and his friend Aholiab? No, we don't. These guys are largely unknown, quite possibly two of the most divinely inspired artists that our world has ever seen. For you artsy-fartsy types, this is going to be an encouraging night. Seriously, these two guys are two of the most divinely and potentially divinely inspired artists that the world's ever seen, and we hardly know their names. Isn't that the first rule for any artist? Get your name out there. People need to know who you are so they know the brilliance and genius that is your work. Isn't that the goal of an artist usually? But here we encounter the ones who built the place that God actually dwelled with his people on earth. I've built some cool stuff before. Nothing quite like that. Well, what have you done? You know that place where God dwells with his people on earth? That was us. Totally constructed that with our hands and no power tools. What else did they build? The Ark of the Covenant. One of the most 
sought after treasures ever. Think Indiana Jones. Anyone seen Indiana Jones? What are they always looking for? Bezalel and Aholiab's work. That's what they're looking for. Bezalel and Aholiab. And the thing we see is an aim first and foremost in God's plan to make famous the name of God. Not Bezalel and Aholiab. We don't know their names because their names are less important even though their work is very, very good. It doesn't matter if you are a musician, a painter, an office manager, a janitor. If you are a follower of Christ, your aim is always to put his glory on display and not your own. Sometimes we lose sight of that. We become self-serving. We become arrogant. And we're trying to make, help people know, I, y'all need to know how awesome I am. For my, for my job safety, everyone needs to know how awesome I am. For the, the good of my work environment, I want to work in such a manner that everyone loves me and knows how wonderful I am and what a gift I am to them as fellow workers. We lose sight of God sometimes in our everyday work, but it's in our everyday work that we're supposed to be putting God's glory on display all the time. It's the best opportunity you have in your day. It's common. It's every day. It's not really, um, it's not a big over-the-top event. It's, it's, it's dailiness and it's, and it's faithfulness. And we try to honor God by being good at what he has gifted us in. You're not allowed to pursue your own glory and then just sometimes talk about God if you're a child of God. It's not good for you to work somewhere and five years into that job, someone says, oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. The goal isn't to keep it a secret. The goal isn't to keep the Christian thing a secret, even if your human resource department says that it is. And it's really hard to be secretly bright. It's really hard to be secretly aromatic. Those are two things Christians are called to be, bright and aromatic. It's hard to keep those things a secret because of the nature of what they are. So the flip side of that coin is making sure you're not that annoyingly over-spiritual guy, right? Just over here making copies and making coffee for the glory of the Lord. Like you don't want to be that guy that everyone hates and doesn't want to be around because you're going to hit them over the head with your facts about Jesus rather than actually love them. So, When we forsake God's glory for our own fame and recognition, we soon find disarray. Have you ever found that in your own life when you forsake God's glory and you pursue personal, selfish things? What usually follows that? A mess. A mess is usually what follows that. Now, it's not likely that you would have found a sign outside of the tabernacle that says Bezalel and Aholiab construction. Their goal was not to be the best tabernacle people for everyone else who wanted a tabernacle for their God. Their goal was to glorify God in their work. The scriptures are making a specific point that your life and your work and your achievements and your accolades should never be more about you than they are about God. If indeed, you are one of his very blessed and distinct children. And we find our reason for that in verses two through three. Look at verse two and three. The reason that God is not simply a footnote to our greater story is found in these verses. What does it say? I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. That's pretty remarkable what God did there. Before anyone even, Moses is still on the top of the mountain. He hasn't even told Israel what's going to happen. Moses, until this moment, didn't know all that was going to be required. And you can imagine he's saying, wow, I've got like a nation of slave labor here. What, 
who's going to do this? And God is comforting him saying, the son of her. I, I've, I've, I've got this kid. He's, not, he, he's gifted, and I've gifted him. See, what's happening here is this. Those who do any truly God-glorifying work are called and appointed by God with God-given abilities. We do not have some abilities that are from God and some that we have just figured out along the way. I want you all to hear that. That's humbling to me. We do not have some abilities that are from God and then some that we can just go ahead and toot our own horn about because we figured something out. Any ability that you have is a God-given ability. God's Spirit, according to these verses, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability. You hear that? I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability. That means that God's glory should be on display a lot more than just when I lead a Bible study, when I share the Roman road with someone, when I just tell a stranger Jesus loves him and buy their lunch. Those are great opportunities, and I wish that we would make, more, make the most of those opportunities when they come about. But I, he says, I've given him the Spirit of God with ability. That's remarkable. That means there are tons of abilities that everyone in this room has that are there to put God's glory on display. God's Spirit is the source of ability, and not just that, but what does it say? Intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, and artistry. That's remarkable. Intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, and artistry. God never calls us to do that, which he does not enable us to do. So to say it in a reversed way is that if we are able to do something, it was because God enabled us to do it. If not for him, we would not have the ability to put together a cognitive and cohesive thought, much less produce something of artistic respectability. It's not just something that we say. He really is the source of all good things, including abilities and gifts. And we will, have, we will be more eager to give of those resources and gifts when we see them as having come from God and still belonging to God. So what do we see here? God has paid attention to all of the details before we pay attention to any of the details. When y'all are making a plan for something, when y'all are going to work hard on a project or you're trying to give yourself to some sort of thought, we need to remember that God has paid attention to all of the details before we pay attention to any of the details. That should make us more fruitful and, and in fact more attentive to those details knowing how involved God is in them. Particularly in verse 5, we can observe that God said, I want to make it, this is, this is God's level of attention to detail. For those of us who struggle with the thought of a God who is just sort of a far distant, um, big, um, bearded, shiny being on a throne that's disconnected from the minions known as earthlings, hear the detail that God is involved in. I want to hear, think of God telling Moses these things and in such a manner saying, I want to make it so that Hur's son Uri, which there were a lot of Israelites, I've always wondered if Moses was like, oh yeah, I met him three years ago. You know, I don't know. But Hur's son Uri will have a son named Bezalel who is able to devise artistic designs. I want to make it so that he has an eye for things that is not common. It'll be different from the way that other people have an eye for detail. This, this guy Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur. And not just an eye for it, but I, God, am going to give him a steady hand to be able to cut and to set the stones 
as I have said. Here, a God who pays attention to all of the details before we pay attention to any of the details. If you're facing uncertainty in your life, which I would imagine we all are to some degree, be encouraged by a God who pays attention to all the details before we pay attention to any of them. And look at verses 6 through 11. I love this. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab. I kind of want to name a son Aholiab. I don't know why. If I have a son that needs a name, it may be Aholiab. And behold, maybe a middle name. I don't know if Lindsay will go for it. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. It is funny to me that we can have a guy named Ahisamach and a guy named Dan. That's funny. We can laugh at that. Dan. And I have given to, listen to what God says, I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their services as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. That's God saying, Moses, I bet you were a little freaked out when I told you all it was going to have to be done. Don't worry, I got this. And I got this with people. There are people who are going to do some serious work, and they're going to do it in a meticulous manner, and it's going to bring me glory. And you know why? Because I made it so they could do it like that. If you find yourself at hour four in front of a computer screen, and you're thinking, there's no point in this, there is a point in that. If you find yourself at hour one and a half with the kids in the morning, and you're ready to lose your mind. What is the point in this? There's a point in it. God has given you an ability. He's given you a gift, and he's done so for his glory. And you are able because God has made you able. Now, this is how God works as well. He called Adam and Eve at the beginning of time. He put time in place. It's a created thing. He created sun, moon, stars, earth, light, dark, all those things. He created Adam and Eve. He called Moses and Aaron, and it's cool here that he calls Bezalel and Aholiab. You see the accountability there. You see two people who are called to something to work together on it. And in fact, two people who are going to lead a lot of other artists and craftsmen to do some serious work that is very meticulous. There's a certain accountability and attention to detail that does not usually exist when there's only one person. If it was just Bezalel, the tabernacle would not have the attention to detail that it has with Bezalel and Aholiab. It is not... Um, I, I think it's safe to say that this is why the church is called to have everyone serving. Like, we don't just have leadership serving or church staff serving. Everybody in the church serves. This means that everyone in here has been given abilities to do something for the glory of God in the time that they have borrowed breath on earth. So I think God, this is the reason what we're seeing here is why God calls everyone in the church to, to serve while they are led by a plurality of leadership. It just seems better by God's design that the church is not made up of a bunch of lone rangers trying to work by themselves, all led by a lone ranger who's on his own. Plurality's better. Bezalel and Aholiab is better than just Bezalel. And he says, and I have given all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. It's not the norm that God would appoint leadership with no one to lead. So he's saying, I've, I've got Bezalel and Aholiab, and I've got a bunch of able men, and they're going to lead them. 
So God has appointed leadership, and like he usually does, he doesn't appoint the leadership with no one to lead. And it's not usual that your gifts end with you. So we could ask the question, who is your Aholiab? If, if you are good at something, are you looking outward and upward in the things that you're doing? Are you bringing people along with you? That's the design of the church. We don't, it's always heartbreaking when you see a church that had one generation that was wonderful at, at obedience to the word and study and discipline and, and evangelism and, and stewardship and then their grandkids are all losers. That's heartbreaking and it happens a lot because sometimes one generation loses sight of the coming generation and before you know it, you have a church a lot like Crosspoint. We planted this church, the church before, the, I mean, obviously, our little L-shaped thing is more than nine years old. If you've ever wondered what was going on here before, there was a church here called Bethel and there were some faithful members of Bethel but over the years, the reaching out had stopped at some point, and the church had essentially died. There were, I think, six or eight members left, and the average age was, was really high. And so they, the ones who were left, were faithful enough to say, we cannot let this die. We have to reach out, and I'm so thankful that they did. But we cannot allow future generations to just flounder. Who is your Aholiab? Who are the able people that you are investing in and growing with? This is very important in the body of believers, yet it is counterintuitive and it's countercultural. What happens if you're the best at your job and you tell someone else how to do it? What happens? Say that again. Conflict. And what else? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did it today in the office, just so y'all know. We have a doorbell, and it makes different sounds. And you hit, and right now, I think it's on the Uga horn. So someone rings the doorbell. Uh, when Biola was here a while back, I loved changing the sounds on her because I would hear her scream when someone rang the doorbell, and it was like a rooster crowing or something like that, and she didn't know what it was. And so right now, it's the Uga horn. And uh, someone hit the doorbell today, and I heard it go, and I just kind of laughed. I thought it was funny. And then Lori said, where are the controls for that doorbell? I said, I'm sorry, that's classified information. And if I told you, you could change it. And I'm the only one who knows how to change it. That was, that was a bit of job security for me. I really like knowing who can control the sound of the doorbell? Is it the Uga horn? Is it dogs barking? There's, there's like eight options, and I'm the only one who knows all eight options. So, and if you find it, if you find it, don't touch it. Don't touch, I'll come after you. Don't touch it. So, uh, so that, that's why we don't like bringing people along sometimes. It's like, well, this is my special thing. I'm the one who's good at this. Why would I want other people to be good at this? Then I wouldn't be special. No, God has given all able men gifts. You're not, you're not special because you're able. You're gifted. God gave you that gift, and you know what he says? Be a good steward of that and bring other people along. I might tell her, maybe someday through prayer, how to change the sound. So, 
Many times you'll find that if a man or a woman is really good at something, they keep their secrets to themselves because everyone else, if everyone else knew how to do what they knew how to do, they would be more what? They would be more what? Ordinary, expendable, dispensable. Who wants to be that? No one wants to. What's your goal in your job? Well, I hope to be really expendable before too long because I'm helping everybody and everybody's doing so good that hopefully you won't need to employ me. So I'm not telling you to be fools in your jobs, but I am telling you to work in such a way where you're bringing people along and you're lovingly embracing other people and helping them to glorify God in their work and in their abilities and encouraging others. If they don't have the same ability as you, so what? Like sometimes we think, I have this ability, and unless others have this ability, I can't really relate to them. And then we put up walls, and it gets all stupid, and our relationships are all fractured. If we see people with other abilities and they're using them well, encourage them. Hey, you do something that I could, I've never even thought about doing, and you do it great. Well done. There would be so much more encouragement if we saw all ability coming from the Lord. We would be aiming to glorify God by complimenting and encouraging others to use their gifts for the glory of God. But we don't want to be more dispensable because that is also defined as less valuable. If, if you're more dispensable, if you're more expendable, then you would be considered less valuable. But here we see that when it comes to the issue of God's glory being displayed as he commands, it is better to let others in on the process. I'm not telling you to go make a fool of yourself at work tomorrow. Please hear the point that's being made biblically. Glorify God with your gifts and bring others along in a loving and encouraging manner. If you want to be the only great Bible study leader or small group shepherd, then you've lost sight of your created purpose, namely putting God's glory on display. You've lost sight of it because you're too busy putting your own glory on display. If you want to know, have I lost sight of what I'm called to? Well, are you spending a lot of your time trying to put your own glory on display? Then you've probably lost sight of the purpose that God has called you to. But if you're good at what you do and you're eager to raise up others in a like manner, then you get it. If you want to be parent of the year, without the thought of helping other parents who could really use the help, then you've lost sight of what's important. We should always have a view towards raising up future generations to work hard and be good at their skill, whatever it may be. Why? Because God aims to fill the earth with image bearers. His aim is that you rightly reflect his character and put his glory on display in your framing, your engineering, your photog photographing, photographing, however you want to say it, parenting, landscaping, wrench turning, teaching, writing, and, 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 and that you always have a focus that's outward and upward and not just inward. So our reason for this approach is found in verse six. What does it say in verse six? Behold, I've appointed with Aholiab, the son of Hassan, the tribe of Dan, and I've given all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. God has given certain people, even in this body of believers, very specific ability that they may not even know what they have. Like there's people at the bottom of this mountain that, that don't know what they got. Isn't that crazy? Moses is at the top of the mountain. Cloud, voice of God, pretty significant moment. There are all these people at the bottom of the mountain that don't even know what they got. They don't know what their abilities are. They don't know what the possibilities are for God's glory and for good to be done on planet Earth. They don't even know. And in fact, next week we'll find out what they're spending their time doing at the bottom of the mountain. It's not so great. There's correction needed. But right now, God's saying, Bezalel and Aholiab and other able men that I have given with ability, they're going to do some things that are remarkable. 
and they're going to do it for my glory. But they don't even know at that point. So in this body, it's the same way. You may have specific ability and not even know what you have, much less the opportunity to utilize it for the glory of God. So we need to spend time as a body of believers considering what our abilities are and what others' abilities are because that's where they're affirmed. We, we are not a bunch of, we don't run around as self-actualizing individuals begging others to tell us why we're awesome. Let me say that again. We do not run around as self-actualizing individuals begging others to tell us why we're awesome. However, it is within the body of believers that our gifts are realized, affirmed, and developed for the glory of God. You, hopefully you begin to see why the church exists. Why are we here? Well, we say for the glory of God, what does that mean? Well, what it means, at least in part, is that we are realizing, affirming, and developing our gifting for the glory of God in whatever we do. And there's no place in your life that's off limits, whatever, whatever you're being called to. So you can't be like, well, I'm not called to be a pastor. I'm just a carpenter or whatever. It's like, no, it's not just people who teach Bible that glorify God. I can do this in a horribly un-God glorifying manner if I'm not very, very careful. But God calls you to glorify him in everything, in every ability that you use that he's given you. It's a chance for him to be honored and for people to look at you and not see you, but to see the Lord. Because you're showing patience and you're displaying the fruit of the spirit and you're pointing Godward in everything that you're doing. Stressful situations, those are great times to honor and glorify God. Long hours where people are at the end of their rope. That's a great time to honor and glorify God. So, look at verses 12 through 18. We've got six minutes. That's fantastic. Lord said to Moses, right after this, you got gifts, you're going to use them. There's people, there's work to do. I mean, God is like, it's, it's almost like a pep talk from the Almighty, but it's, you can't call it a pep talk when it comes from the Almighty because it's so much bigger than that. Like, have you ever heard, seen like a good movie where like the, it's the last game of the season and the coach is like, all right, boys. And before you know it, everyone's like, Bleh! and it's like Braveheart or whatever. And they got axes and they're running and they're going to win no matter what. This is bigger than that. Like way bigger than that. And he says this, and the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to all the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I make you Christ-like. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, the soul should be cut off from among his people. Six days you shall, be, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. What an awesome moment in our story. That is an awesome moment in the story of the people. There is stuff to do. There are people gifted by God to do it. You are my people. You will change the earth. You will change history. Here is a tablet written with my finger. And you are going to go and you're going to do these things because by my spirit, I enable you to do them. And don't you dare forget to observe the Sabbath and rest. I, I'm blown away. that Okay, verses 12 through 18 
immediately remind God's people of command and rest. You can picture God saying all that he said. And the people, you could just imagine people like Moses says it to the people and the people just go to work recklessly and passionately, enabled by God, encouraged by God. And just they don't even want to slow down because there's so much to do and we have the resources now and we have the gifts to do it. And go, go, go. Sleep is not needed. I do not need rest. Let's go, let's go. You can picture people just recklessly and passionately lunging forth to do what God's called them to do yet without regard to the equally important call to rest. The equally important call to rest rightly. Sometimes pastors are given the opportunity to confess their sin in front of their congregation. And I struggle with laziness, but I'm not always good at resting rightly. This is very convicting. Work your tail off, use your gifts, Rest rightly in Christ. Rest rightly. God reels them in before they have a chance to take the line out too far. And he says, this is the tabernacle where I will dwell with my people. But if in the building of the tabernacle you do not rest regularly as I've commanded, you will be cut off from my people. You hear what God's saying? This is the tabernacle. The place I dwell with my people, but if in building the tabernacle, if in pursuing all you are as the church, you neglect to rest, you will be cut off from the very thing you have been pursuing so recklessly, wholeheartedly, maybe passionately, but wrongly, if you're not resting. Remember, disobedience is never as sweet as obedience. That's the lie of sin. The lie of sin is that if I disobey, it will be sweeter than obeying. If anyone can give me one example where that worked out well for you, let me know, because it never works out well. Disobedience is never as sweet as obedience. It may cost you more, but it is sweeter because your Lord blesses you and he gives you what you need to continue to move forward. Even in sin, it says he provides the way of escape no matter what. There's no temptation that has overcome you that is not common to man. God is so good to his people and our God is quite merciful to place us in Exodus 31 on the very week that our schedules and responsibilities are ramping back up. Before 2003, before a guy would come here who was going to be teaching in Exodus during a time of life where we generally are not good at resting and pacing ourselves, God ordained it and such that we didn't get through Exodus 31 last semester, which was the plan. I wrote it down. It was in my computer. And it didn't happen, but instead, he made it so that tonight we get to look at work hard and rest rightly. God's so good. You, I, I wish we could orchestrate things that well. We can't. But here we are, getting back to school. Schedules are ramping back up, and God mercifully gives us these, these verses. The goal is not to get to the point in life where we no longer have to work so hard. Please hear that. If your goal every day is to get to the point where you don't, is to work so hard that you can get to the point where you no longer have to work hard, which is sort of the American dream, if we're honest with ourselves, um, that's wrong. For Christians, the goal is to work hard as long as we have borrowed breath for the glory of God. And you work hard, and, and you don't try to get to the point where you no longer have to work hard, but you work hard and you rest rightly. You work hard and you rest rightly according to the pattern that God has set for us as our creator. It was Augustine that said, why did he take six days to do all that? 
Why was he dawdling? He's God. Well, I think he was teaching us how to live. After the pattern of your creator, as a covenant of all time, a promise of all time, you, this is something that keeps us right with our Lord and keeps us moving in a manner that is worshipful. Work really hard and make sure you rest rightly. We are always giving and we are always serving sacrificially and consistently until Jesus returns. The kingdom work's never done. There's a couple sermons that we have online right now. Um, Ben's encouragingly titled sermon, uh, uh, we're never finished and the work is always, the work's never done. Something, something very encouraging like, you can't stop. There's more to do. And there's encouragement in that. If indeed we are gifted by God with abilities and with the spirit to move forward in, in a healthy manner. Um, I want to encourage y'all as we're climbing back in. If y'all have time during the week, you may go look at some of, the, some of our, these studies are online. Um, you can go and review some of them from uh, the spring. What month, what month is it? It's August. So that would have been the spring um, to go review some of those and um, climb back into this story so that we can consider um, how to honor and glorify God as we respond uh, to the text. I'm really hoping that y'all are encouraged tonight at what God does for us and how he is abundantly compassionate and he, his provision is always abundant. And he doesn't just say, I'm going to run you to death, but he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a pattern of life that is conducive to hard work and rest, and I'm going to do it by my spirit. That's a very loving God who, who is always only good to his children. Y'all might spend some time this week in the parable of the talents. I mentioned it at the end of the sermon. It'd be something good to, to look at and saying, God has given us things, and what are we doing with them? God has given us gifts. God has given us resources. Just like he did for Israel, what are, we, what are we doing with them? How are we being good stewards for the glory of God? And then you consider what it says in James. Anyone who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's a sin. So we want to move forward in faith with our resources, with our time, with our abilities, everything that God's given us to put his glory on display. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time tonight. Pray that you would allow us to go and just walk in faith. I'm so thankful that none of us have to get up tomorrow morning and muster what it takes by our own strength to do what you call us to. But rather, by the work of your spirit, we get to wake up and we get to work hard by your power and by your strength. And we get to find our rest in Christ continually, not just once every six days, but as a perpetual continual rest because we're Christians and our Lord is our rest. Lord, we are so blessed I pray that our pattern of life would reflect how great our God is. We love you and praise you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.